Welcome to Podcasts. Welcome to Podcasts. Welcome back. I'm EJ. I'm a journalist for Rolling Stone. And I'm Dan. I'm a musician. And today we are going to talk about the genesis of Cats. How it was made. How, how, it, was, how it was developed. How it came to be. <laughs> how it came to be. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Um, you know, because you, you think about cats and you wonder how could this organism like possibly exist in the world? Like where did this come from? What sort of sick mind birthed this? Right. I mean, we know it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, I know that much. I know it was a few other people. But like seriously, how on earth did this come to be? Who who think of how many people must have said yes to this? Many, many people. And it paid off. It paid off, but they didn't think it was going to pay off. Well, at a certain point, they didn't think it was going to pay off. But at the first reaction to it, or at least one of their early reactions to it, must have been, this will pay off. At some point. Right. But, I mean, yeah, it was multiple people. Like, probably, I mean, thinking about this realistically, like, when you think about investors, when you think about, like, production team, when you think about, like, you know, not even just Andrew Lloyd Webber and, like, Trevor Nunn and the people who were in the top echelons, like, Probably a hundred people or more probably had to be like, this is a great idea. I would imagine. Yeah. Like, I'm not super familiar with how it works with like Broadway and West End producers and how it worked in the 80s. But I would imagine they would need a lot of backers. Yeah. Or some really, really rich ones. But I don't know. So today we're going to walk you through that. We're going to walk you through the people who took a look at the synopsis of Cats, namely... uh, a bunch of horny street cats um, auditioning to die one after the other until one of them gets granted the right to die. And we're going to talk about how all of these people looked at that and said, yes, I want that good. Yeah, I can't wait. Let's hear it. Um, So Cats was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and it's most closely associated with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh And I actually did some research for this episode. Um, I bought a copy of Andrew Lloyd Webber's memoir, Unmasked, which came out in 2018, uh, which I guess is a Phantom of the Opera pun. Sure. Yeah. And um, Dan, can you describe the cover for our audience? Well, it is an all white book with a pencil drawing of Andrew Lloyd Webber's beautiful face, but his face is sort of Mm, half like faded away like as if he's almost uh, a ghost-like figure yeah like the phantom like he's being like erased. the phantom of the opera yeah like it's sort of like a half of his face is there just like like the way that the phantom mask takes away half of your face and what would you say like how much do you know about his background and and his reputation not much i i don't really know much i'm excited to learn more I know that he's British. I know that I'm pretty sure he came from a fairly upper class background. I think his dad was a musician. That's right. His okay. dad was a musician. So tell me, because I don't really know much more than that. So yeah. So Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, his father was a composer. Yeah. Uh, albeit like a pretty obscure one. And uh-huh. his mom was a piano teacher. And he did. He grew up pretty upper class. Um, he grew up staging musicals in his house. And sure. he idolized American musical theater composers like Rodgers and Hammerstein and also Elvis Presley. Um, and you can see both of them. Wait, the- American musical theater composers such as Rodgers and Hammerstein and Elvis Presley? That's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Elvis was musical theater in his way. I do this podcast to escape editors. 
and to escape editing. Okay. Jesus fucking Christ. Okay, okay. So, okay, American musical theater composers like Rogers and Emerson and also American rock musicians like Elvis Presley. Is that better? Okay, that's much better. Okay. Yes. And um if you've if you've heard Joseph, like the Pharaoh is essentially like an Elvis impersonator. So that's very like strong in his work. Yeah, sure. Um, and in the book, he sort of positions like the start of his evolution as a composer with his dad playing him some enchanted evening and saying if he ever wrote a tune as good as that, that he would be very proud of him. Wow. So that his dad said that to him. Yeah. When he was a kid. Wow. OK. So this is a whole like a lifelong sort of daddy thing. Yeah. And do you want to guess which tune finally won? I don't want to spoil or anything, but can you guess which tune won his father's approval? I'm guessing memory. Yeah, you're right. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. So so in 1968, um, he writes Joseph, um, which I mentioned earlier with Tim Rice, who was his frequent collaborator. Yeah. Um, He's a lyricist and he's kind of. He's kind of got a more cynical eye, I would say, um, and he sort of counterbalances ALW's more florid um, tendencies. And in 1970, he writes Jesus Christ Superstar. Both of them both of them are pop musicals, but they're very specific kinds of pop musicals. And I want to read you something that Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker wrote um, in a review of the memoir. Though his music isn't often grouped with the prog rock of the early 70s, the highly tutored, self-consciously arty music of Yes and Early Genesis, and so on. The spirit is very much the same. Educated British musicians with classical training, inherited rock rhythm sections, minimal blues feeling, and a taste for the grandiose and bombastic. And I wanted to ask, as a musician, do you agree with this? Minimal blues feeling. But you said aside from that, it feels spot on. Yeah. Well, I mean, minimal, like, I'm really emphasizing the minimal. I don't think oh. there's a lot of blues in Angel or Weber. But the rock rhythm section, sure, with classical training, etc. The rest was all cool. What does he mean by minimal blues feeling? Because that, that, stru- that stuck out to me. Well, I'm not really sure what he means. What I mean by it is no blues feeling. <laughs> <laughs> like, does, is he basically saying it has no soul? I, I think it has very little soul. I, I do not go to Angel or Weber for the soul. So how does this apply, this description, like Adam Gopnik's description of like sort of, I don't want to say soulless, but like like veering, like very white. Um, it's white. Yeah, white, stylized, pop, musicals. Like how does that sort of manifest itself in Cats? Well, that's exactly what it is. Like Cats is sort of like a mixture of like opera and then... uh uh, modern classical music, I would say, and then like synth, um, strange, obscure, like synthesizer explorations that were coming out of the late 70s and early 80s, and then just straight up bubblegum pop. In the early 70s, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is a hit, Joseph is a hit, um, in the late 70s, Evita is a hit, and all of these were done with Tim Rice. Yeah. In the late 70s, um, he starts working with this new lyricist, um, Alan Ackborn. On a musical called Jeeves. Um, do you know about Jeeves? No. Well, you, it was a huge flop. Oh, so, was it? Yeah. So it came out. It came out. It was on, on Broadway. On the West End or what? Broadway? Both. Wow. Um, it closed on Broadway within a month. Really? Mm-hmm. It was a huge flop. And so he's still kind of reeling from this and thinking, 
like, damn, like I shouldn't have strayed from Tim Rice. Uh-huh. Um, when he starts developing the sort of the seed of the idea for cats. Yeah. So what do you know about the source material of cats? Well, I know it comes from a T.S. Eliot book of poems. Yeah. Do you know what it's called? Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Is yes, that right? That's right. Cool. And that's absolutely right. Um, and do you know a little bit about T.S. Eliot? Not much. I would love to learn some more. Well, I can't tell you that much more. Okay. But I can tell, I, I can tell you a little bit more. I know he was a, an American poet who, who at some point in his life relocated to England. Yes. Um, he was, he's best known for um, this poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, um, which is the only poem that I know by, I know like three lines by heart. Mm-hmm. So whenever I do a mic check, I recite it. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's also best known for his anti-Semitism. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Spilling the tea And yet here. here we are, two Jews, two big Jews. Two giant Jews. Giant, giant Jews talking about him on the podcast. Can I read you um, a line that T.S. Eliot wrote? Please. About Jews. Please do. The rats are under the piles. The rats are underneath the piles. The Jew is underneath the lot. Money in furs. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he didn't like Jews very he much. He really didn't like Jews. He has had some defenders who have sort of emerged, um, like literary critics, uh-huh. who have tried to like read that line and argue, no, 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 this guy didn't hate Jews. Well, what, what's their argument? There isn't an argument. No argument. <laughs> Jews. He Jews, and he would like he talked about it in lectures. Like he said mean <laughs> things about Jews, like in public. Like if anybody in history, like had as like could be documented more as an anti-Semite. Like like at least with Walt Disney, there's yeah. some debate. Yeah, like there's some room for debate. But with T. S. Eliot, it doesn't. It's seem like, like a like Wagner there is. kind of thing. Like the guy was proudly anti-Semitic. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, baby. Wow. And he was an anti-fascist. Apparently, he did okay. like make fun of fascists. Um, okay. But I mean, I think that his body of work speaks for itself. Sure. Um. So yeah, big Jew hater. Um. But he wrote this book in 1939, I think. And it's very light comic verses for children. Um, And in looking for his next project to develop, Andrew Lloyd Webber thought of his mom reading him these stories about jellical cats. And he was like, could I use these pre-existing poems and sort of adapt them, set them to music and make Mm -hmm. a musical about it? It was sort of like a personal challenge to him almost. That's what he said. He said it was like a personal challenge uh to like like that that's how he thought of it because i how heard he a conflicting it. um version what did you hear well i heard that during um what was the show he did before cats was it evita evita was before cats and jeeves in between yeah okay i heard that he has a habit of during technical rehearsals you know which if you've never been in theater and i'm sure you all have listeners if you're listening to this <laughs> podcast but <laughs> a technical rehearsal is basically this like long slog of a rehearsal when you're about to open a show where it, it it just lasts for hours at a time and they're getting the the light set up and the orchestra's with you and whatever. It's just like, it's this like, it's before the dress rehearsal. It's just like this long slog of a day. And Angela Weber famously hates these rehearsals 
and got so frustrated during the Evita rehearsal that he just like threw everything down and started pacing back and forth and to comfort himself started chanting McCavity, which was his favorite poem as a kid. And then as he was chanting McCavity to himself, had thought of the idea of setting those poems to music. That's a much better story. Well, that's what I read. And in the lead up to the movie coming out, there were a few articles that came out. Yeah, I mean, that's a much better story. Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not Angela Weber's story he tells in his book. So. Well, uh, here, here's what I'll say. And I think this comes up throughout um, the book. I mean, I think memoir is a notoriously unreliable genre because people, when they're telling the story of their lives, they kind of look back retrospectively and they kind of craft their own narrative. Mm-hmm. And throughout the book, I really get the sense of Andrew Lloyd Webber, and here's where I'm going to do like probably the worst British accent in Please. the in the history of the world. But like I can't not do it. Like oh, I'm just a posh young boy from London, <laughs> and I <laughs> and I didn't know that I was going to be rich and famous <laughs> at all. I just wanted to make beautiful music and work in the theater, uh-huh. and that's sort of. Like, that's kind of the persona that he crafts for himself. He's uh-huh. funny. Like, he's wry and he's funny. So but he doesn't talk about how much of a sort of, like, asshole he is? He does and he doesn't. He and by does- asshole, like, I don't really think he's an asshole, but he's you can see footage of him being demanding. to Like, the, the behind the scenes of Cats that we watched, like, he is being very difficult with that orchestrator. Yeah, so describe that that footage and then I'm going to read you this, this excerpt. Okay, so we watched a behind the scenes of Cats where he is... Working with the orchestrator. Uh, this is like the Cats 1998, the the filmed version of the stage show, which aired on PBS and then became a well-loved VHS DVD. And the behind the scenes, he's working with his orchestrator, uh, making new lush orchestrations for the television version of Cats. And he is, I mean, demanding to say the least. He just keeps like insisting that whatever the orchestrator did is just simply not working and he needs to rewrite it and needs to redo it. And it's demanding another three days of studio time. And it's, he seems intense. He seems like an intense perfectionist guy. Yes. So he's very, uh, he admits that in the book. He's pretty straightforward about that. Um, He says bad. He says, I realize that my angst in the studio when he's recording um, the Joseph album was the first of many meltdown- meltdowns I have had when faced with less than bullseye performances. My problem always has been and still is that I am a perfectionist. Any substandard performance drives me bonkers. Uh-huh. So he's a dick. It's seemingly. Yeah, that's that's something that a dick seemingly. would say. A dick, but a genius. And from what I understand, the the idea for Cass came out of one of these meltdowns. Actually, there's a story towards the end of the book where he's having lunch with Milos Forman, the director, and he's like, I really want to do Amadeus and I want you to be Mozart because you're a dick. <laughs> Makes and, sense. Yeah, and Andrew Lloyd Webber is like sort of insulted, but like mostly just doesn't want to do it because totally he's sense. lazy. But um, yeah, so he's a dick. and But he remembers this book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, about Jellicle Cats. And... Um, you know, we've sort of been dancing around this, but do you know, like, what a Jellicle cat is? That was the main question people had when the movie came out. Right. Uh, no. I don't know what a Jellicle cat is. It's never completely explained. So a Jellicle cat is actually supposed to be, an, according to Valerie, T.S. Eliot's widow, it's an approximation 
of how the British upper class pronounced dear little cats, I guess. Uh-huh. That sounded a little more cockney when you, that you, when you did it than upper class. Look, well, I'm terrible. Like, I don't know what to yeah, tell you. Yeah, sure. But, okay, so I'm trying to imagine. I couldn't do it either, but I'm trying Jellicle to. Jellicle cats. I'm trying to imagine, like, very, like, upper class. Jellicle cats. Jellicle cats. Jellicle cats. A jellicle cat. Yeah, I get it. I get it better when you say it, yeah. So I mean, I can't really do it, but that's what I think he must be referring to, if it's upper class. And pollicle dogs of the peaks and the pollicles is pollicle. Poor little dog. <laughs> a poor little dog. Little dog. Yeah. A Very plummy. A yes. dog. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It's genius. <laughs> yeah, it's genius. Okay, good on you, T.S. Eliot. Yeah. <laughs> I get you. it now. But of course, that's never explained in the show. Yes. It's not even a little bit explained in the show. Uh-huh. But um, so the first thing that Andrew Lloyd Webber has to do is he has to get the rights. And in order to do that, he has to sort of wine and dine Valerie, who's his widow. Okay. Um. And she was super skeptical because apparently Disney had wanted to adapt the book a while ago. And T.S. Eliot had not wanted to because he hated Fantasia. <laughs> really? Yeah. What did he hate about Fantasia? I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty likable. <laughs> it's really boring to me. I, I liked it when I was a kid. He didn't like it. He didn't want his concern was that they would be quote unquote pussycats, which... <laughs> doesn't make any sense to me because that's literally what they are so he's he's kind of his take was um you know my cats are you know gritty street cats i don't want some disney pussy cats on screen exactly uh-huh. okay. yes exactly so Andrew Weber had to uh comfort valerie in the fact that his cats would indeed be gritty yes and, and he had to think sexual he had to think fast uh-huh. and so what he thinks of is this dance troupe that had a big, a couple big hits at the time um, called Hot Gossip. And um, I'm going to show you a Hot Gossip video. <laughs> it stars Sarah Brightman, who, as we all know, would appear in Cats and would be Andrew Lloyd Webber's second wife. Yes. She was in Hot Gossip. And I just want you to describe what you see and like sort of what the aesthetic is. Okay, it's it's opening up with... Okay, it's very 80s. There's three women dancing. One is in a leotard. Two are in... Um, oh, now they're all in different outfits, so I can't even describe it. Okay, it's, it's hard for me to describe. This is the most 80s video I've ever seen. They're dancing. There's a guy who's shirtless with a, just straps on his shirt. The women are wearing leotards and tight um, suits, spandex suits, white suits. It's in outer space. Uh, there's a fog machine. And the men are wearing leather pants. <laughs> this is what it sounds like. Oh, we, we, uh, I'm not going to play you too much of it because we might get to it for copyright issues. But Nobody cares about this song. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. But this... So... So yeah, they're wearing like leotards and leg warmers. It looks like the much of the costumes in cats. Exactly, exactly. So he so he tur- he has to think fast and he turns to Valerie and he's like, "Have you heard of the band Hot Gossip?" And she's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "That's sort of how I imagine the cats to be." And she looks at him and she's like, "Tom would have loved that." <laughs> <laughs> Tom would have loved hot gossip. He would have loved hot gossip. Yeah. 
So he gets the rights based on that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah. A brilliant move. It was it was a gamble. Yeah, for sure. Based on that video, that's a fucking gamble. But what that's telling us is that Andrew Lloyd Webber really had the vision for what Cats became in his head before the rest of the creative team was even involved. Yes, and that that becomes very clear um, throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but I should say that the one condition that his estate established is that they had to just use the poems from Elliot and they couldn't add any original lyrics. Wow. And, um this gets complicated later on, but now they have to come up with a story. And okay. we spent the last episode talking about the story. And it's interesting that people always like complain Cats doesn't have a story because they try very hard to come up with one. Yes. Apparently. There's a story. There is a story. You yes. can say it's a bad story, but it's... Sure, you can say that it's not told in the most coherent way, but it's a story. Yes. And they sort of tease it out because the poems, If if have you read the poems? Some of them. Would you say there's a story there? No. Yeah, none. There's zero. There's no story. Zero. It's anecdotes. Yes. At best. At best, it's anecdotes. <laughs> it's portraits. It's glimpses. Yes. Snapshots. Um, so in the poem, The Song of the Jellicles, there's a reference to a jellicle ball, but there's no like actual explanation of what it is. So it's actually the creative team, and we'll talk about how they put together the creative team a little bit later. Um they come up with this idea that there's a jellicle ball where this tribe of cats meets once a year to pick a cat who deserves a new life. Um, and as Trevor Nunn put it in an interview, like all the other cats would be like the dancers in a chorus line, displaying their talents and saying, pick me, pick me. The initial idea for the musical was much like a chorus line for cats. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Well, cause it was big at the time. Sure. Of course. Um, and a lot of people, including us think they're auditioning to die. Um, but that's actually not the case. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So what is the case? According to Trevor Nunn, it's actually like a lot more complex and also ridiculous than that. It's even more ridiculous than we imagined. Okay. <laughs> Let, let's hear it. Okay. So apparently there's an actual, you know how they say, up, 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 past the Russell Hotel. Yeah. So there's a real Russell Hotel okay. in London. That's a real hotel. It still stands today. Okay. And it's right behind one of our big bookstores. Um, this is Trevor Nunn talking. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, the heaviest books are shelved on the very top floor. There's the heavy side layer the cats are talking about. So they literally think that heaven is the top floor of a building. The top floor of a building. Yeah. That's what the cats think. They, that's what the cats think. The they heavy think side that layers. if they get to the top floor of the building, then they will be reborn. Yes. Even okay, but presumably this happens every year, and a cat gets to the top of the building, and the cat is reborn, or else the cats wouldn't keep doing it. Well, maybe what happens is like there's one side of the building, and then there's another side of the building, and the the cat falls off that side of the building, and so there's just a bunch of cat corpses. The cat falls off the other side of the building, and so it's a cat suicide. Yeah, so in a way, it's worse. And cats have nine lives. Or if you believe in reincarnation, the cat has a new life. Or if you believe cats have nine lives, or you know, there's, a, there's a lot of ways around it. But. Yes, they did not think of it as cat suicide. Okay. Um, according to these interviews, they they thought that it was just like from a cat's perspective, mm-hmm. like they're just going above the top floor of this building. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's it's really pretty condescending to cats because... How is it condescending to cats? Well, that's... I mean, look, if anything, cats have a much greater command of height and jumping and 
you know, cats can fall from a building and survive much better than we can. You'd be surprised. You'd be su- my husband's cat when he was growing up fell five stories and died. Well, well, you know what I heard is that there's like a weird medium where they die. Like if they, if the cat had fallen from twenty stories, he or she might have survived. But right. five wasn't enough time to for the instincts to kick in. Yeah, I don't know how tall the Russell Hotel, the bookstore behind the Russell Hotel is, but I presumably, because otherwise the cat would come back and be like, hey, the heavy side lair isn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Presumably it's high enough that they would die. Okay. So I guess it doesn't really change our hypothesis all that much. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's much darker than I could have ever imagined. <laughs> it's way weirder than I could it's have weird, ever imagined. It's weird. I mean, can I... Also point out, Trevor Nunn, I believe, before this had been directing for the Royal Shakespeare Company. That's correct, yes. That was what he was doing. Yes, so <laughs> the creative team is Cameron McIntosh, the producer. Um, him and ALW get along swimmingly, like hit it off right off the bat. He somehow is like on board with his vision for Cats, which I don't understand how. But um, yeah, Trevor Nunn was director for the Royal Shakespeare Company. He had actually directed Sir Ian McKellen in Macbeth, and oh, wow. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So Sir Ian McKellen famously being the best part of the movie. Yes. Um, and he's never done a musical before. And it's kind of astonishing that he even got on board because I read this New York Times story from 1981. And he initially envisioned it as something in a very intimate hall. Five actors, two pianos, a chamber piece. A chamber piece. Which doesn't sound anything no, it's the opposite of what it became. It's the complete opposite. So he imagined it as like a, a five actors. So you're in like a tiny space and these five cats, these five cat actors are interacting with you? Yeah. Well, they kept the element of interaction. Yes, they did. Keep, but that's basically the only thing that they yeah, kept. Yeah, it became a mega musical, the first ever mega musical. Yeah. And uh, he thought it was Mirror Elliot's charming, slightly offbeat, mildly satiric view of late 1930s London. I don't even think it's charming. No. It is offbeat, but it's very offbeat. Very, very offbeat. Um, and it's not satiric. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but to me, like, I think probably the most significant get is Jillian Lynn, who did the choreography. Sure. Um, and ALW makes a lot in his memoir about how at the time Britain was undergoing, like, a dance explosion. With the implication, I guess, being that British people had never danced before. But, like, dance was, like, becoming big in Britain. It, but not on the West End yet. Yes, I it guess that's becoming, the point. It was becoming big in the culture, just like disco. Like, we're talking, right? Basically, yeah. I mean, it was around that same time. Like, post-disco, post the British reaction to Studio 54 and all that. Yeah. Um, and the, I, he, he said that everybody thought that Brit, the Britain had two left feet. Uh-huh. Um, I believe he says in, in one interview. Uh-huh. And um, so he always envisioned Cats as being sort of this very dance-driven musical, to his credit. He was sort of a visionary in that regard. And um, she was a very well-respected choreographer, but she was also kind of a diva. And initially, she wouldn't sign on unless she could direct, and everybody else is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> had she directed anything before? I think she had. Okay. I think but she had. But it wasn't what she was known for. I mean, he had three huge hits under his belt. Like, yeah. is, this is this wasn't going to be like you know a small musical. This was going right. to be like this a, was going to be a big deal. Yeah. Um, but from her perspective, she's like, I'm the number one choreographer in Britain, and this is a show about cats. So give me what I want. Yeah. At basically. least initially. 
basically yes um but they were like no and they appease her somehow um so she signs on and she i think gets it pretty much off the bat um how would how would you describe the dancing in cats um you know i'm not a dancer i never have been and so i don't have the the terminology for it but i can just tell you that it's fantastic (laughs) it it is awesome the the original choreography is fucking awesome it's so exciting it's a listen the cats are all they've all all the actors have learned i said the cats the actors (laughs) have all learned how to move like cats um and then also how to be like just exciting as cats it's impressive choreography it's it's acrobatic it's um but it's also like kind of uh contemporary and hip how would you describe it i i'm on but i'm also not a dancer um so i don't really have the vocabulary either but i completely agree with everything you're saying to get a dancer in here and we could ask you know to really give us a technical explanation of what the dancing is well, stay tuned. Or if maybe we can get Jillian Lynn. Oh, she died, didn't she? She died. Unfortunately, she died after the 2016 revival. So she was around to see that. And boy, was oh, she pissed. Poor thing. She was pissed because they basically absconded with her choreography. Not all of it. Not yeah, they, of it. they keep they keep a lot of it, right? They, keep, Actually, they kept a lot of it, but they redid a lot of the solo numbers, right? Like they redid Mr. Mistopheles and Rum Tum Tugger. And- yeah. You know that what I heard, weird. actually? In the, so that was a London revival in 2014 that then transferred to Broadway. Mm-hmm. And in the 2014 on London, uh, they made Rum Tug Tugger into a rapping cat. Yes, I read that too. And then it was must have been so horrible that they changed it back when it came to Broadway. Why would they do that? <laughs> Why would they do that? Well, the same reason they hired the guy from Hamilton to, cor- to re-choreograph in the first place. I guess we should thank God that... They didn't have Jason Derulo rap. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We should thank God. Like we shouldn't complain about anything about cats. We didn't have a rapping rum tum tum. <laughs> no, we didn't. Count our blessings. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The choreography is amazing. She hated that they, I think she said it made her want to murder somebody that they redid. <laughs> no, she did. Yeah, she did. I think she, I think she said that. I have to go back and check, but I'm pretty oh, sure that's wow. what she said. And um, so she lived to see that. Um, but her choreography, I think, is transcendent. I'm going to tell you something that's really going to piss you off later. But um, I think it's really amazing. Um, and she gets it immediately. Like, she says from the very beginning, like, she wants the cats to be sexualized. Um, there's a documentary where you see her, like, behind the scenes sort of giving direction to people. And, and she keeps using the words pagan to describe the cat's movements, um, sort of like pagan. This, yeah, like this ritualistic uh, type pagan movement. ritual. And um, that it, makes sense. Yeah, in this, yeah, because it is a pagan. I mean, it's it is right suicide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in in the times, um, she's quoted giving this direction during Skimbleshanks, the railway cat. Like, I want ugliness, paganism. You are not cutesy animals. So she gets it. She gets, totally gets it. She gets it. That's why Angela Weber was so insistent that it was her. Yeah. She got it from the beginning. But he actually wanted Twyla Tharp. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And she didn't. She hated the music. Yeah. Uh-huh. That doesn't surprise you. Not really. Yeah, she sucks. <laughs> I don't know if she sucks, but she's too, you know, she's too hip, whatever. Okay, so he's got he's got this creative team on board. And... um. 
I want to talk a little bit about like the background of the characters um, because in the lyrics, it's kind of hard to discern a relationship between them. But do you think that there are any clear relationships between the characters? Um, when you are um, watching the show, it seems that some characters have an affection for each other more, you know. Which ones would you say? Oh, I'm trying to remember. Um, the ones who have an affection for... Uh, I would say that all the women cats love Rum Tum Tugger. I would say that... Um, Monkus Trap is the protector of the kittens. But we don't, we only know that because the actor <laughs> in the behind the scenes <laughs> says, I'm Monkus Trap, I'm the protector of the kittens. Um, oh, I don't know. Who... Uh, do you, do you know? Do you have an answer for me? I do because I was I was surprised because it's it's not apparent to me at all uh-huh. from the show that there's any re- other than rum. Everybody wants to fuck rum tum tugger, but they apparently thought about this very hard. Okay. And um, uh, in the movie, um, McCavity breaks into the Jellicle Ball because he wants to win, but in the musical, according to Trevor Nunn. McCavity broke into the Jellicle Ball because he was crazy about Demeter and wanted to catch her. Monkey Strap had a fight with McCavity and drove him away. Probably he and Demeter are lovers. Monkey Strap and Demeter. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's Monkey that Strap seems to be what he's implying. Demeter are lovers. That seems to be what he's implying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. They're both hot. You think Monkey Strap's hot? Yeah. Demeter is clearly, I mean, Demeter is gorgeous. Well, Jemima is gorgeous, I thought. They're both gorgeous. They're both gorgeous. They're both gorgeous, young, beautiful cats. And Monkey Strap should be hot and charismatic. Yeah, Monkey Strap should definitely be charismatic, but I wouldn't say Monkey Strap is like Rum Tum Tugger hot. I mean, Rum Tum Tugger is yeah, but so rum, hot. Yeah, but, but like Rum Tum Tugger is a, a rock star, like who you want to fuck, but Monkey Strap is a boyfriend material. <laughs> so... <laughs> So if if like so, Monkey Strap. Did you ever see Reality Bites? Mm, years ago, but so, I don't remember it. Okay, so I can't use that comparison. Well, you can for our listeners. So Monkey Strap is like Ben Stiller, and Rum Tum Tugger is like Ethan Hawke. That's, that sounds about right. Yeah, in that movie, where Monkey Strap is like Paul McCartney and Rum Tum Tugger is Mick Jagger. Uh huh. That's not, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I guess I agree with that. Um, but yeah, so they thought about that very carefully and Grizabella is supposed to be a prostitute, which to me seems ambiguous in the actual, the lyric. Yes. Did you read the lyrics to Grizabella, the the glamour cat? Yes. I don't think it's ambiguous. Why don't you think it's ambiguous? Um, I have to look at the lyrics, but I think they're all references to places that would be assumed to be brothels. That's that's correct. Yeah. Well, not brothels, actually. Okay, tell me. So it says that she um, hangs out on Tot- Tottenham Court. And at the uh-huh. time uh, that T.S. Eliot was alive, that was a major intersection for sex work. Um, and then, I, I don't know the exact names, but they mentioned various pubs. Mm-hmm. Those aren't brothels. The Rising are. Sun and the Friend at Hand. Yes, those are the names. Yes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> And those those were actual pubs, uh-huh. um, like around that area. So yeah, she was supposed to be a prostitute, and we'll talk more about the origins of Grizabella. But in a way, it's advocating for sex workers' rights. 
podcast. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The musical. Yeah. I don't know about the T.S. Eliot's poems, but for sure the musical is. So that song is based on, I guess we'll talk about Grisabella now. That song, that song is based on, it's not based on um, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. What happened was um, Valerie comes one day to Andrew Lloyd Webber and is like, here's a bunch of poems that Tom didn't publish. Amazing. Yes, it's like treasure. She really loved him. I guess, yeah. Yeah. She was really excited about it. (laughs) Yeah. He kind of pants her out to be a bitch, but I guess he like charmed her. Well, it makes sense for him. He's he's an asshole. Like they must have found some common ground. The bitch and the asshole. Yeah. <laughs> that should be a like the pinky and the brain type. Show. <laughs> I would watch that. I would love to see like a heartwarming movie about the making of cats. Oh yeah, I would love to see that. Like how he befriended her. Oh, I would. I would. <laughs> pay so much money. Greenlight at Universal. Let's see it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll make more money than Cast itself. It did. would almost have to. <laughs> Who's playing Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber? Eddie Redmayne. It would have to be Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, T.S. Eliot's widow. Uh, I'm Emma Thompson. Let's just say. Oh yeah, great casting. Um, she brings like all these poems that he didn't publish. And one of them is this poem about Grizabella the Glamour Cat, and it was supposed to be in the manuscript, but um, he eventually decided like not to publish it because it was too dark, which it very obviously is, like mm-hmm. too dark for kids. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to introduce this character, Grizabella. And um, they initially cast, do you know who they cast? Oh. You know. Judy Dench. Yes. You know. I know. You don't have to feign <laughs> ignorance. We're we're with friends. I'm just trying not to alienate our listeners by, by how much I already know about cats. If we didn't alienate them already. <laughs> if you're still listening, we love you. <laughs> we love we should all be friends. <laughs> we should hang out. <laughs> Send us an email. Podcasts one two three at gmail.com. <laughs> Let's all hang out because God knows you don't have any friends. Also, listen, if you have any questions for us, please send us an email. Podcats123 at gmail.com. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> advice. You know, if you wanted our advice on the <laughs> <laughs> So as you know, but lied about knowing. <laughs> so you could appear more approachable. <laughs> Judy Dench was initially cast as Grizabella. Uh-huh. And the old Gumby cat. Yeah. Oh, and the old Oh, double cast. Yeah, there was there were dual everybody was cast in dual roles. But you but that changed. Grizabella is not usually the Gumby cat. Yes. But Buster Jones is usually Gus the Theater cat. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And old Deuteronomy, I think, was supposed to be a double role. I think Brian really? Wilson was supposed to play a double role. Yeah, most of the cats were double roles. Um, I think that changed when they went to Broadway. Tell me what happened to Judy Dench. She shattered her Achilles tendon. <laughs> and, um, and so she couldn't play Grizabella. And they get Elaine Page, who was Ava Perone in Evita, and who at the time was having a very public affair with married father of two, Tim Rice. Oh, really? Did you know that? Did not know that. Yeah, and Andrew Lloyd Webber was pissed about it. Even though he would later go on to have an affair. Wait, he was pissed 
Um, why? Because it like screwed up like their it screwed up their relationship. Uh-huh. And um and so she eventually comes in and Andrew Lloyd Webber says that if Judy Dench had played Grizabella, it would have been more of like an much more of an Edith Piaf type orchestration. Uh-huh. Um but obviously like Elaine Page can sing much better than Judy Dench yeah. can. Um so he didn't I mean, how do you think that would have sounded? Weak. Yeah, I think that would have sucked. It uh, would have sounded weak. I love Judy as an actress, but like, yeah, I, I do not want to hear her sing memory. I think they fired her. Really? That's personally what I think. You don't think she broke her Achilles tendon at all? No, I think they fired. Really? You think they fired her? And they wanted Elaine Page. I have no they evidence. They checked Elaine Page's availability and said, look, like, can you step in if we fire Judy? Yeah, I think so. It's certainly possible. I have I mean, no evidence to support it. Right. But. Well, just like I have no evidence to, um, you know, like apparently Daphne Rubin Vega was pregnant and that's why she didn't do Rent the Movie. But come on. Come on. Come on. You got Rosario Dawson. They wanted Dawson. Rosario Dawson. They wanted someone young. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Unfortunately, although I love Daphne Rubin Vega more than so anything. Do I. But although so- I did see her in Les Mis and that was miscast. Yeah, well, I could see it being good. It wasn't great. It wasn't her thing. Really? Anyway, I, I'm not on this podcast to drag De- Daphne Rubin-Vega. Why not? Because <laughs> she doesn't need it. She already wasn't in the movie. She didn't She didn't sell I Dreamed a Dream? No. Okay, well, that's unfortunate. But, so, Judy's out. Elaine's in. And as Elaine Page tells it, she was, like, taking the call from Andrew Lloyd Webber sort of underscoring the point that like memoir is a faulty genre. Like she was taking a call from Andrew Lloyd Webber when she saw a cat running across her window. And that's how she decided to take the role. But that's obviously a lie. Of course that's a lie. That's a blatant lie. Yeah, come on. But anyway, so like take this with a grain of salt. But he, the way he tells it, he kind of thought it would be a disaster from the get go. So right before it's about to open, he says like what we had seen was not fit for a stage. There was too much disunity in the team, too much unhappiness, and with Judy's accent accident, too much uncertainty. We were pulling the show. And then they are like, "No, we can't. Can't pull the show. Mm-hmm. We we can't do that." Um so then Cameron and I began counting down the hours to the first preview as if they were our last before our execution. So that's sort of how he frames it, is wow. that this was just like a disaster. Like he just thought it would be a disaster. Yeah. But I don't really think that he felt that way because he was so invested in the idea that he took a second mortgage on his house to pay the theater where it was originally staged. Insane. <laughs> did you did you know that? <laughs> yes, I knew that. Oh, fuck you. Because the theater was being used for a, for a television show, right? The yes. theater was being used for a television show. And there, he's like, listen, I need, I need a big theater. I need to rent this out for this show I'm doing. And they say no. And he said, listen, if the show closes in a certain amount of time, I will pay you back for the whole year, right? Yeah, he was supposed to pay a penalty if it ran longer than six months. Which was a hefty penalty. Yes. So he made the biggest mistake you can make, which is he put his own money into the show. He did. He put his own money Number into the show. Number one rule of what you're not supposed to do. Is that true? That's like a... That's what they say. Who says it? Um, who says it? They say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're right. They're right. It's it's a bad idea, but he was apparently so invested in the premise of the show that uh, and in his own music that he 
was willing to take that chance. Right. And he was a little bit cocky from, from Evita, but I guess Jeeves had failed. Yeah. He was coming off a failure, and he had Trevor Nunn, who had never directed a musical, and Cameron McIntosh had never had a big hit with an original musical. Uh-huh. Um, and it was the first big dance musical. Like, the way he tells it, he felt all the cards were stacked against him. Interesting. But, I, I mean, you kind of... I just don't know if I believe that because you can't put that, you can't take that big of a risk without thinking that it's going to succeed. Well, he he might have thought it was going to succeed until rehearsals were truly underway and Judy then sprained her ankle or whatever it was. Whatever whatever his version of that story he's telling. Yeah, or Judy Dench wasn't working in the show or whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like, you know, I think maybe once rehearsals or previews or whatever it was were underway, that's when he started to get freaked out. He also didn't have, um, so memory wasn't finished uh-huh. at that point. Um, and memory was actually also another poem that T.S. Eliot wrote called Rhapsody on a Windy Night. Uh-huh. And it wasn't, it had nothing at all to do with the original kids' poems. And um, do you know where the melody of Mer- of memory was from? Well, I think he kind of uh, ripped off Puccini, right? Yes, he did. But he did that for a reason. Okay. What's the reason? He was developing a musical about Puccini. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So it was like sort of a conscious ripoff. Of a Puccini. conscious ripoff. But like not quite. He wasn't literally plagiarizing, but he was making it as close as possible to Puccini. Which is sort of like his bread and butter. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, sure. I mean, that's his whole thing. Is like ripping, like sort of like v- coming very close to ripping people off completely, and then just sort of step, like especially with Puccini and yeah, opera with opera. What else does he? What other Puccini? Uh, I I would not have that in my head, but that's just what like the whole Phantom score is like almost opera shit. Yeah. Um. So he was clearly very inspired by it, quote unquote, inspired by Puccini, yeah. and um, and he comes up with the melody, and he and he. That project didn't work out, so he brings it over to Katz, and this is the melody that ALW says, like, finally won his dad's approval, and his dad was like, that's a million-dollar melody. And it, I'm sure it was. Oh, boy, was it. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the lyrics of the poem weren't quite working, so they basically had to beg Valerie to let them change it, and they had a bunch of lyricists submit versions and, you know, the current credits, like, it's cobbled together from a bunch of different guys, uh-huh. including Trevor Nunn. But at one point, um, Tim Rice had written a version of the lyrics. Okay. Um, and he, and on opening night, Elaine Page was still singing them. And uh, Tim Rice telegrams, like, threatening to sue ALW because he didn't use his complete version of the lyrics. Really? Yeah. Um, and they didn't work together for decades after that. Wow. I did not know that. Seriously. I actually didn't know it. Um, he threatened Sissou because he wasn't using his complete version and they didn't work together for years after that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's not cited as like the direct reason, but they, I mean, they did not work together for years after that. Wow. Incredible. Um, so as a result, none of Tim Rice's lyrics are in there? None. The final version? No. He's so not he could have made millions of dollars off of that song and he didn't make anything because he wanted his whole lyric to be in there but don't cry for tim rice (laughs) because i think he's fine he's got that disney money he's sitting on piles of disney money i'm sure he's doing just fine 
So on opening night, the way ALW tells it, it's going to be a complete disaster. How long that overture seemed? Has there ever been such an agonizing wait for an executioner's blow? Cameron and I clutched each other as the final big cat theme thundered out and waited for the debacle. Instead, there was a massive round of applause. And so every time he thinks that it's going to be a tremendous disaster, the audience just loves it. They eat it up. Like it's the producers. He's like a real life version of the producers. That's exactly what he says. Really? Yes. On the next page, he compares it to the producers. Wow. He says, where did we go right? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So it's a huge, huge hit. Um, And the marketing was also revolutionary because it was one of the first shows to not explicitly feature like the production details on advertisements. Uh Just the glowing cat eyes and the word cats. Um, And now and forever. Or was that later? I think that was later. Okay. Because it wasn't now and forever. Because as as kids growing up in New York City, I'm sure you remember the commercials, Cats Now and Forever with, um, it was like that commercial with the main Cats theme playing and then also... The Mr. Mistopheles commercial. Yeah. Cats. Now and forever at the Winter Garden. But right? for sure. I remember that giant billboard in Times Square with just the cat eyes. Yeah. Of course. It was iconic. Yes. And it, the title was actually originally Practical Cats, but they shortened it because it didn't fit on the ads the way they wanted it to. Uh-huh. So hence cats. And the t-shirts also sort of became like a status object of their own. Um, and it becomes the second best-selling souvenir shirt in the world next to the Hard Rock Cafe shirts. I remember those shirts. The Hard Rock Cafe shirts or the cat no, shirts? No, both. What did the cat shirts look like? They were just the cat eyes, I think. Oh, really? Did you have one? No. I just remember that when I was in kindergarten, there were some kids in my grade. Some of the girls were just obsessed with cats. They'd seen it like 10 times and wore the shirts and had cat ears and all that. Why were they obsessed with it? Well, it was... I'm sure we'll get to this in another episode, but part of the success of Cats was that it was a family musical. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, well, I mean, I don't think of it as a family musical and I don't think it was like judging from everything I read in his memoir. It certainly wasn't conceived that right. way. Right. I don't think it was conceived that way, but that's what it became for sure. So are, are the American people just so stupid that they don't understand that like Rum Tum Tugger shoving an audience member's face in their well, there's also a long history of kids movies with like some adult themes that maybe the adults understand and the kids only sort of understand so it was like fun for the whole family yeah in the horny cat form yes cool okay <laughs> <laughs> so it's a worldwide phenomenon and princess diana and prince charles they're married at the time and they go see it And first of all, Princess Diana, according to ALW, develops a crush on the guy who played Mr. Mustopheles, which I don't think that's a good like place for her to focus her attention. Probably not. Honestly. And also ALW tells a story about how they're at a party and Princess Diana is trying to demonstrate to Prince Charles uh, how the dancers are doing splits. Uh-huh. And she does a split herself, and she's not wearing underwear. <laughs> I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Of course not. Um, and the reviews are pretty good in Britain. Okay. Um, but when it moves to New York, it's not glowingly received. The reviews sure. are kind of mixed. New York's a tougher crowd. Uh, is that known? Do they say that too? Does who say it? They. They say that New York is a tough crowd. Broadway is a, it's tough. 
It also costs more money to put a show on Broadway. I do think that there is sort of like a like. Have you watched Eurovision? No. At all. It's this very cheesy, like, European song competition with all these, like, crazy costumes and, like, really cheesy pop songs and stuff. I do sort of associate, like, a European aesthetic with more, like, the Hot Gossip video I showed you earlier, like, very aggressively um, cheesy and saccharine, like, more, I think there's more tolerance for that in Europe than there is Mm -hmm. here. Um, but I'm also just talking out of my ass, like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. Listeners, please feel free to call in, write in. And tell us if we're dead wrong about the West End. Yeah, British listeners especially. Like, don't hate us. Don't hate us. Don't send death threats. Yeah, we love you. Thank you for sending us cats. Thank you so much, honestly. Um, Can I read this Frank Rich review to you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I love Frank Rich reviews. You won't won't love him so much after this. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. (laughs) Cats does vaguely attempt a story and it also aspires to become the first British dance musical in the Broadway tradition. In neither effort does it succeed. (laughs) He then goes on to devote two paragraphs to how much he hates Gillian Lynn's choreography. Wow. Yes. That was the reaction I was hoping for. That makes me upset. He calls the Jellicle Ball draggy and McCavity shop-worn Bob Fosse. Wow. Isn't that mean? So mean. Two paragraphs. Two full paragraphs. That's very, very mean, Frank Rich. Do you agree? No. I guess I agree with Shop Warren Bob Fosse. <laughs> I mean, look. <laughs> come on. Give her a break. It's a, <laughs> there are cats on stage. Like it's okay. it, it, there's, there's a novelty of watching cats do Shop Warren uh, Bob Fosse. That's true. That sort of adds to it. It does add to it. And so then, I mean, he basically says that. He says that the success lies in novelty. Whatever the other failings and excesses, even banalities of cats, it believes in purely theatrical magic. And on that faith, it unquestionably delivers. I agree with that. Me too. What would you say um, cats' reputation is in theater circles? I think that in theater circles, it's looked down on. Why is that? Because... You know, it, it's not exactly high art. Uh, it's entertainment. It's a show about nothing, more or less. And we know there's a plot. We've talked about the plot. But for all intents and purposes, it's about nothing. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a novelty. And that's a lot of why it's successful. And, um, yeah, I don't know. There's no real acting involved. Like, you don't think there's like, acting? There's acting, but it's not the kind of acting that a theater, a real theater person would respect. What about when Christabella reaches out toward Deut- Deuteronomy? Yeah, yeah, okay. In the end of the first step. Do you <laughs> empathize with Christabella? Yes. So that's acting? Yes. Then what about when Monkey Strap's the protector of kittens? You don't believe <laughs> not, when he's the protector of kittens? I believe it, but I don't think it's great necessarily acting. Or maybe it is good acting, but it's not the kind of acting that a, someone in the theater world might aspire to do. That's It's not subtle. It's not subtle. I, I agree. These characters are not highly developed. I agree with that as well. I mean, they're, but they're, to be fair, they are literally based on poems. Yes. And it's not like Andrew Lloyd Webber, like it's not like his musicals don't feature well-developed characters. Like I think Ava Perone is one of the most, be- the best developed characters in the history of musical theater. Yeah, yeah. 
And every mezzo-soprano in the history <laughs> of musical theater agrees too because they're right. desperate to play her. Yeah. Um, so I think he was some, I do think that they were somewhat limited in that regard uh-huh. by the demands of the estate and mm. the restrictions that they had. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's reputation is very bad. Um, it's a long running joke in the nanny. Um, did you ever watch the nanny? Not really. You would like it. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's about a British theater producer uh-huh. and the whole joke is that, um, his nemesis is Andrew Lloyd Webber and it's always like kind of a punchline. Like how could he make a show about cats and be a billionaire? Uh-huh. And uh, there's also, a, it's a, also a punchline in angels in America. Right. That I know. With Roy Cohn. Uh-huh. What does he say that it's, uh, I don't remember exactly what he says. He's just, he just like, say- he just says like, it's about cats. Like I can't believe it's something like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, have you seen cats? Right. Right. He's like, have you seen cats? It's about cats. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Something like that. It's not really a joke. It's, <laughs> it's a punchline, though. It's a punchline without a joke. Cats yeah. is the butt of the joke. Yes, cats is the butt of the joke is, is the point. Um, so, I mean, it's very divisive. Um, but as we know, it grows close to $4 billion worth worldwide. Yes. Um, and it's the fourth longest running musical in Broadway history. And obviously, that kind of money brings Hollywood crawling. Um, yes. Which brings us to next week. So how do you make a movie out of a musical that mm. many people say should not have been made in the first place? And why did it take so long for that to happen? I can't wait to find out. So please join us next time on Podcast. Podcast.